As we've been going through the book of Revelation, we finally arrived at a point where we can give a definite structure or at least a, a definite flow of the kinds of things the book is talking about. The Greek name of the book Revelation is Apocalypsis, which is where we get the word apocalypse from. It just means unveiling, but of course in our, our time it has come to mean the end of the world. And that is exactly what the book of Revelation is about. It has application to every time, but it's specifically prophesying what's going to happen at the end. And there are many details that the Lord reveals to us about what's going to happen. Not as many details as we'd like. It specifically lets us know there are things that God has hidden from us until that day, but we can know quite a bit. And so we're going to run through this list that we've been working through. Number one, the first thing we believe is going to happen is called the rapture of the church. We believe that the Lord will catch away. That's what the word rapture means. It's kind of like a raptor is a bird of prey that snatches things, right? That the church will be caught up into the heavenlies. We've, as I've said many times, the book of Revelation does not specifically talk about this. I believe it's implied. There are other passages that talk about it more clearly. Number two is the rise of Babylon. We're going to be talking about this quite a bit in the coming weeks. There's going to be a worldwide empire that will take over the world like pinky in the brain, my friends. Number three, the ravage of God's people. If you didn't get that, just leave it alone. It's fine. The ravage of God's people. Persecution is going to be part and parcel of what happens during these days. When this empire rises, they will be ravaging those that come to faith in Christ and the Jews, especially at this time. Number four is the ruin of the planet. That there are going to be cataclysmic natural, or shall we say supernatural, disasters that are happening on the earth. Stars falling from heaven, earthquakes, the water will be turned to blood, the grass will be burned up, the sky will be blotted out, the planet itself is going to begin to heave, and the Bible even calls it birth pangs at one point. Lots of points, actually. Number five is the revenge of the devil. We looked at this some last time, but first and foremost, the Lord is going to unlock the abyss. He's going to allow the worst of the worst demons that are currently in prison to ravage the globe at this time. Thessalonians talks about how God will remove his hand of restraint from the devil. And last week we talked about the dragon, who is Satan. He symbolizes a dragon in the book of Revelation, who will come to the earth and, and try to wipe out all of God's people, that he's being given a much longer leash than he usually does. In the midst of all that, number six is the refuge of the faithful, that God is going to take care of those that are his during this time. We read about the 144,000 sealed Jews, meaning there will be a remnant of Israel that survives this. We talked about the two witnesses that will continue to maintain the testimony of the gospel. And we talked last time about how the Lord has prepared a place in the wilderness for the Jews that flee from the wrath of the Antichrist to hide in the wilderness. Number seven is the reign of the Antichrist. When you talk about the book of Revelation, the word Antichrist comes up pretty quick. And that's for good reason. We've not actually seen him yet, except just a little bit in this book, but he is going to feature to the end of this book. And remember, in the context of where we are in the passage, we had the seven seal judgments, which led to the seven trumpet judgments, and we are anticipating the seven bowl or vial judgments to be poured out. But before that happens, remember, we are giving a context of, about what is going to happen because the remaining judgments are going to be all about the fall of Babylon, the collapse of the great city. But John hasn't seen anything about that yet. 
So while the end will come very quickly, the book itself is taking a long time to set the stage for what is going to happen. And that's where we are in the structure here. Last week, we saw what was happening in heaven, that the dragon, the seven-headed dragon, that's Satan, who has been tempting and, and accusing mankind since the beginning, will finally be kicked out of heaven. He will no longer have a place to approach the throne, like in the book of Job or the book of Zechariah, if you read your Bible. And he says that he is enraged because he knows he only has a little time left. He's going to try to attack the Jews. The Lord is going to protect a remnant of them in the wilderness. And it says because of that, Satan's anger will be roused and he will increase his fury like never before. And the last thing we saw symbolically was that the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, other translations have John stood on the shore of the sea. It makes no difference to how we interpret what is about to happen in chapter 13. So in this symbolic vision John is having, there's a seven-headed dragon standing on the shores of the ocean. And then in verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Monster might be a better translation there. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. This is the infamous beast of the book of Revelation. Many people don't even know what they're referring to when they say the beast. You'll see people in the news every now and then talk about the mark of the beast. And you've got to wonder, do you even know who the beast is? Well, this is who it is. This is a symbol, a figure that will play a huge role in the rest of this book. And we're going to look at him in detail today. The beast, the monster, this hideous abomination that crawls up out of the sea. Immediately, we note two things about this beast. Number one, he is similar to the dragon who represents Satan. He's similar to the dragon. How so? First of all, the dragon gives him his power and authority, but this beast has seven heads like the dragon had seven heads. You're immediately supposed to catch that similarity that this is, this is the work of the devil that is being done here. The second similarity that we see is that this beast bears similarity to the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7. We've been through the book of Daniel verse by verse. We've talked about the Antichrist at length, both there and in the book of 2 Thessalonians. I encourage you to go listen to those stories, but we will try to get a comprehensive picture here today. There will be a lot of scripture that I'm bringing in. I've got all the references up here on the screen because in order to understand fully what the Lord has revealed, we've got to look at all of the information he has revealed. But this beast out of the sea bears resemblance to the four beasts of Daniel 7, especially the fourth beast, with ten horns. The first one Daniel saw in chapter 7 was a lion with wings. So it says here he's got the mouth of a lion. If I'm going to face a monster, I don't know if the lion's mouth is something I'd want to be staring down. The second was like a, be a bear with one side raised above the other. And this one has the, the claws, the, the feet of a bear, which also, if you've ever gotten a good look at one of those bears are you know they look cute and cuddly like Winnie the Pooh from a distance and then you get up close and you see the mitts on those things yeah you don't want to mess with that but also the, the third beast that Daniel saw was a four-headed leopard 
So you can see all of these images are being brought together. But let's look at this fourth one that Daniel describes. In Daniel 7, verse 7, he says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, like the beast out of the sea that John is seeing here. And the book of Daniel is not coy with what this interpretation is supposed to be. Each of those monsters that I just described represented an empire that would rise in place of Babylon. The lion with wings represented Babylon, which existed at the time. The bear raised up on one side was the Medo-Persian Empire. The four-headed leopard represented Alexander the Great's Greek Empire and those that came after him. And then we have this fourth beast. This is essentially the same prophecy. There are some that you'll hear that will describe Revelation as like, no one can make heads or tails of it because what are they even talking about? But if you know your Bible, you know that a lot of these things that seem so random and arbitrary are actually references back to things that we've already seen in Scripture. You've got to know your whole Bible. So therefore, if those previous beasts represented a worldwide or well, not worldwide, but an empire that was raised up. This is prophesying the same thing. Satan's method of seeking to destroy God's people in the final days will be to raise up a worldwide tyrannical empire that is symbolically called Babylon in the book of Revelation. But we see that it also, in this prophecy, bears similarities to Persia and to Greece. The idea being it is embodying the worst and most terrible aspects of every great kingdom that ever came before it. It rises out of the sea. There's a couple things to learn here. Number one, I think this is a lesser point, that the sea is very often in the Bible compared to the nations, that the other nations are like the sea. So he's rising up out of the Gentile nations. All right. The sea in the Bible also represents a symbol of disorder and chaos and life without God. Well, that just about makes sense, doesn't it? That the world is being unmade and here's the devil taking a hand in it. But I think primarily we read earlier that there would be a great beast that would rise out of the pit, out of the abyss. And I think this is what you're supposed to gather from this. Remember we talked about the word for bottomless pit in the Greek is abyss. And it's very likely, and I think almost certain, that the abyss is not just a, a hole in the ground. It's a hole in the sea. It's the depths of the ocean, the abyss, that pit. So by seeing this beast rise out of the sea, it's like we unlocked the abyss before and out came these terrible locusts. But here comes something out of that pit that is worse than anything you've ever seen in your life. None of those uh, symbols are good, is what I'm trying to get across here. Seven heads like the dragon, then ten horns. Each of these horns have, have a diadem upon them. Remember, a diadem is a royal crown. It's not like the other Greek word stephanos, which is a victor's crown, which is what the Lord says he's going to give to us when we get to heaven, that, that victor's crown. This is a crown that represents authority, like a king's crown. And Daniel chapter 7, verse 24, explains what these horns represent in that beast, which I think is, a, of course, supposed to help us interpret this one. Daniel 7, 24 says the ten horns are ten kings, which makes sense to why they would have crowns on these horns. Ten kings. 
And Daniel 7 explains, we looked at it in great detail, this final empire that will rise is composed of 10 different kingdoms that bring their authority together to form one final empire that we call Babylon. Revelation 17 confirms this as well, that there will be 10 kings that will give their power and authority to the beast and also will pool it together to have this one kingdom. So this is a coalition. This is a similar to the United States in a lot of ways. Well, I'm not saying we are the beast. I'm saying how we are individual states that come together under a single federal head. You're going to have the same idea with this final empire, these 10 kings that will unite together. We've already seen in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, this rise of this nation. I've already mentioned it. Revelation 6, verse 2, the first seal. Remember, the, the prophecy of the end of the world was symbolized as a scroll, God's plan for the end. But it was sealed with seven seals, and no one could open it. But then here comes the Lamb, here comes Jesus, and he opens the first seal. And the first thing we see in Revelation 6, verse 2, the first bit of prophetic future information about the end given in Revelation, he says, I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. The first thing we see that will happen at the end is the rise of this kingdom. A white horse. It's almost in mockery of Jesus, which is what's intended to be read there. And I think both of these passages, Revelation 6 and Revelation 13, teach that this beast is not merely the final empire. It is that. But it is specifically the emperor of this final empire. The one who will stand up as the tyrant and the ruler over this empire. We'll see this as we go through Revelation 13. That as it describes the beast, it will use increasingly personal terms to describe him. And especially when you get into chapter 17, it will describe the beast almost in, in contrast to the rest of the Babylonian, the uh, later Babylonian empire. So this is not just the empire, it's the emperor, shall we say. And this man, this figure, the beast, goes by many names in the scripture, such as the beast. But students of prophecy have settled upon the term antichrist, to, use our, to be our catch-all term for him. This comes from the epistles of John, Antichrist. Christ, of course, referring to Jesus. Anti meaning false, or instead of, or against. This inverted mirror image of our Lord Jesus, Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, John wrote this. The same author that received Revelation said, Children, it is the last hour. By the way, if John was writing during the last hour. What does that mean we're living in? The last couple milliseconds. Stoppage time if you're a soccer fan. The last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. So what John is saying, the rise of people like this and the increase of people like this is evidence that the end is near. Paul gives him a different title, but gives us a lot more detail. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, he says, Let no one deceive you in any way. Why does Paul say things like that? Because if he says, don't be deceived, dollars to donuts, what he's about to talk about is something that a lot of people are deceived by. Meaning a lot of people are going to get this wrong. So let's read what he says. That day, 
will not come, meaning the end of the world, the last day, like we're talking about now, will not come unless the rebellion comes first, which we could talk more about that. Go back and listen to the study in 2 Thessalonians. And the end cannot come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul goes so far as to say, we know that we are not living in what John will call the tribulation. Jesus also calls it that because there's no antichrist. There's no man of lawlessness. There's no son of destruction. The revelation of this man is going to be the way that folks know they're living in that time, which is why 2 Thessalonians is full of comfort. So those that believe that we are now living in the times prophesied, it's like Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, guys, don't be tricked on this one. This is one of the, as I like to call, the big blocks of Bible prophecy. There's so many things that we can debate the details. And I love to debate the details because it's, it's fun and interesting to get into. I mean, the biggest of blocks is that Jesus wins and he's coming back, right? That's the biggest one. But there are several things that if you're going to interpret the Bible with any kind of literal interpretation as we do, there's a few things that are certain. And one of them is that there will be a final worldwide empire led by an evil dictator that we call the Antichrist, who will rise to torment the globe at the behest of Satan. Now, John the Apostle just, read in, just wrote in 1 John 2, there have been many Antichrists. So we ought to distinguish between the little a, antichrists, and the capital A, antichrist. That there are many who have gone before this final guy that are a lot like him and have done his work, although in lesser fashion. Paul also said in 2 Thessalonians in another verse, the mystery of lawlessness, remember the antichrist is called the man of lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Meaning the devil is trying very hard to lift that beast out of the sea even now. Satan has been trying to set up his kingdom since the very beginning, since actual Babylon. And there have been many throughout history that you could call antichrist with a little a. And you could maybe even use it as an adjective rather than a noun. Does it, that make sense to you? That this person is an antichrist person. They are antichrist. They're against Christ. They're standing in the place of this one that will rise in the end. The biggest example, of course, is Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the Greek king ruling over Judea, Israel at the time, who put a stop to temple worship, set up an image of himself in the holy place, put a stop to the teaching of the law, forced people to shave their beards and start dressing Greek, refused to let people circumcise their children. He was kind of the typical antichrist, meaning he was a picture of the one who's going to come at the end. Nero in the early church was considered by many to be another type of the antichrist. He was dead by the time John wrote this, but they're saying this guy that was the first one to really begin to persecute the church like he meant it. This one is an antichrist. I believe Muhammad would fit this category. The doctrines of Islam can only be called antichrist because they believe that Jesus was not who he said he was. This is the true prophet of God, and we're not going to worship God as Father or Christ as Son, which John says to fail to do that is the doctrine of the Antichrist. Church, uh, not church fathers, but believers throughout history have identified various popes as Antichrist popes. 
Now, of course, here as, as Protestants, we don't acknowledge the authority of any pope, but it was not always as, as corrupt as it had became. And there were times where guys that were ruling the church began to introduce things into the church and act in such a way that bore no resemblance to a bishop or a teacher or a pastor. And that because they had the authority of all the church began to function in this way. Adolf Hitler was an antichrist. I mean, he's the easy one. It's almost cheap to talk about him. I'm going to have an empire that will rule the world. We're going to try to kill all the Jews and we're going to take over everything. Oh, that sort of fits, doesn't it? If you believe the final empire is going to be a revived Roman one, by the way, it can be bone chilling to see Hitler's men marching with the standards that had been part of old Rome because they were reviving that old ancient Holy Roman spirit. And there are others that could be called antichrist. And if you read throughout church history, they will identify people, some of whom even we would kind of like historically and say the things they're doing are antichrist. It's against the gospel and it's against our Lord Jesus. Satan will use, however, this final empire, this last antichrist to work his evil will against the world. So let's move on to verse three. Now that we kind of know what we're talking about here. One of its heads, remember there's seven of these. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? You can hear the blasphemy in that, because how often in the Bible does it say, who is like the Lord? That's actually what the name Michael means, by the way. Now, this is a very mysterious symbol here. We've got this seven-headed beast with ten horns. It's the Antichrist and his empire. And now we see the fact that one of the heads has a mortal wound and is healed. There are two things that you can look at here. I believe you have one definite referent for this symbol and one possible reference for this symbol. So one thing that I think everybody agrees on, and one thing about which there's some discussion, and I'll let you make up your own mind. Here's the first, I think, definite reference. What does it mean that one of these heads is going to be mortally wounded and then recover? It is clear that last day's Babylon, and I'm continuing to use this symbolic name until we can talk about who this is specifically. It's clear that this last empire will be the revival of a previous empire. It'll be the second coming, so to speak, if I can use that term, of a previous evil kingdom, the mortal wound that was healed, that Daniel 9.26 tells us that the people of the prince who is to come, meaning the Antichrist, the people of the Antichrist will destroy the temple. That happened 2,000 years ago. But that people is the same people of this coming prince, the Antichrist. And chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, are going to talk more about the fact that this kingdom is a kingdom that has been here before. So we know that that's clear. And I, I know I personally am itching to get into the options here right now. There's really only two that I think are really worth considering. But I'll just say when we get to chapter 17, we'll look at that in detail. That's what I think the, the primary reference for this head that was wounded and then was healed. It's a describing that this empire was dead and now it's back. And people are going to marvel. Wow, can you believe that? However, there are some, and there are some men that I greatly respect, who believe that the Antichrist himself will suffer a mortal wound and recover from it in a mock resurrection, which would certainly fit the bill 
of what this guy is trying to do, to be an imitator of Jesus Christ, a replacement for Jesus. I'll just say personally, I don't know that you can say that definitively. It certainly, as I said, would seem the kind of thing Satan would try to do. I think the primary thing, as I said, is that this is a revived empire. And, uh, and if you think as John Walvoord and Robert Thomas and many great uh, pre-trib guys believe, then that, that's great. I don't know if you can say it definitively, though. But it would be something if this, this world ruler is struck down, people begin to grieve, and then he recovers by this demonic-inspired power. And then people maybe sit up and start to listen to him. That could be that's possible. It's something that's put out there sometimes. Whatever the case, this guy is going to astonish the world. It said they all marvel at him. To marvel at someone. Wow. Can you believe that? Look, that, that, I never thought I'd live to see the day of something like this. Yeah, I, how did they pull that off? Marveling over this person. And I believe that likely... Whatever this wound is, is when the Antichrist will personally take command of Babylon, of this final empire. Because that is what the word tells us will happen. In Daniel chapter 7, I know we keep coming back to this, but remember, Revelation 13 is deliberately echoing Daniel chapter 7. So let's read Daniel 7 verse 8. He says, I considered the horns, ten horns on the beast, and behold, there came among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the root. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So he's watching this enormous ten-horned beast. All of a sudden, out grows this little horn. And this horn pushes out three others, like a baby tooth coming in, pushing out the larger or sorry, the grown-up tooth coming in, pushing out the baby teeth in front of it. And it talks about this one like growing and basically dominating all the rest. And Daniel 7.24 very handily gives us an interpretation of what that means. It says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. The horns represent kings. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So, Remember, Babylon, whatever that kingdom is, is composed of 10 different kingdoms or kings, nations that have come together to form this coalition or this federation, shall we say. But there's going to come a point where this Antichrist will rise to prominence and dominance over the rest of them. And in that process, three of those kings will be removed. We also know, according to our passage here in Revelation, and others, that this will take place at the halfway point of the final week, that seven-year period, because it says he's going to rule for three and a half years, 42 months, it's going to say in verse 5 of our chapter. So Babylon rises. There's this empire ruling over the world, and it's not going very well because they're fighting all over the world. There's carnage, there's plagues, there's famine. Stars are falling from heaven. Demons are unleashed from the abyss. The sky has been blotted out. It's not going the way they would have wanted. Then halfway through, here comes this man, this Antichrist, who will establish himself and say, this is no longer a federation. It is a dictatorship, and I am the king. Now, you might say, well, why would the rest of them put up with this? Well, they won't, 
There's going to be three kings that are going to resist this guy. Who do you think you are? This was founded for the good of the world, for us to rule together. And for you to come in and establish yourself, we won't stand for it. But the Antichrist will eliminate three resistant kings. So this ten-nation kingdom will become a seven-nation kingdom, but they will all be under the thumb of this guy. And if you want to go back to our study in Daniel 11, it seems clear from Daniel 11.43 that these three nations that will resist are African nations. It says that when the Antichrist, he's called the king of the north in that passage, goes down to consolidate his kingdom, he will leave the south with plunder from Egypt and Libya and Cush. Cush is modern-day Sudan. They're all Islamic nations. Interesting to consider that. But that's just something to consider. It's not that that's, you know, well, what about Australia? And what about, it's like, whatever these ten nations are, three of them aren't going to like it. And they seem to be African, which helps establish the character of this kingdom. And it only makes sense because we're talking about the successor to Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, which ruled over those nations as well. But he'll establish himself as the sole ruler. Now, there are some that want to articulate, well, but the Antichrist is not even going to be known until this point. He's just going to come out of nowhere. But I do think that you can go a little beyond that. You will see him before this. You remember we read in uh, chapter 6 that the first seal was a man riding on a white horse. And that represented the rise of this nation. But because we're seeing this personal figure and because of what Daniel 9 tells us, I think it's clear that this man had a role and played a key and prominent, probably military role in establishing this kingdom. Daniel 9.27 says that it will be him, the prince who is to come, who will establish a covenant with many for seven years. The one that will establish the beginning of this kingdom is this Antichrist. So get this picture in your head. This ten-nation coalition rises to dominate the globe and their general is the beast. And he's the one that will establish and be the hero of this kingdom. But he will not be the one in charge until halfway through, when things are going so poorly, he stages a military coup and establishes himself as the dictator. Three of those nations rebel against him. He marches against them with all of his military prowess, crushes them, and establishes himself as king of the world. Which explains why the world marvels at him. Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war against the beast? Who can fight against him? Where's your Genghis Khan and your Napoleon? Where's your conquerors of the globe? Who is Alexander the Great compared to the beast? When Satan is cast out of heaven, he will accelerate the Antichrist to the forefront and all the world will marvel at him. Verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Can you see there the similarity to the little horn that we just read about? And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years, as I just said. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Literally, they're his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Whereas we just now described the authority of the Antichrist, you could call this the cult of the Antichrist. 
the worship or the idolatry of the Antichrist. And next week, we will look at this in a lot more detail. There's another figure called the false prophet who will rise and help establish this, but we'll get the, the basics of it today. The blasphemous words of the beast, we already read about in Daniel 7. Paul talks about him exalting himself against every so-called God. And we've already talked about this last time, but this, this moment is another one of the big blocks of prophecy that we've got to know. I think that this blasphemy specifically describes the abomination of desolation, which will be the moment where the Antichrist will ascend and become that beast that we know. There's lots of passages in the Bible that describe this. I'm going to read three for you. The first of which comes from Jesus himself. Matthew 24, 15 through 16. This is when the disciples came and said, Hey, Jesus, what's going to happen at the end of the world? And Jesus said, All right, I'll tell you. Pretty important passage of scripture, isn't it? He said, So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place... Matthew has a little parenthesis, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus says, there's going to come a day where the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation will stand in the holy place. And when you see that, run for the hills. Get out of Jerusalem. Don't save anything. We talked about this. Flee to that place in the wilderness where the Lord has prepared a place for them to hide. But Jesus said the abomination and desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. What is that? Well, Daniel 9.27 is the verse Jesus is talking about. He says, The prince who is to come, the beast, the antichrist, the man of lawlessness, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, seven years, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Half a week, 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years is the time of his dominion. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator that he will have abominations that bring desolation to God's people. Okay, well, what is that? <laughs> well, okay, so it has something to do with the Antichrist and a treaty that he's going to break with Israel after three and a half years. It's going to involve the holy place. It's going to involve putting a stop to worship in the temple, which we believe must then be rebuilt. Paul just lays it out nice and plain like Paul likes to do. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 says, He opposes himself and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There it is. We believe that the temple will be rebuilt because Jesus said you've got to look for something in the holy place. Daniel says it's going to put an end for three and a half years to all the worship going on in the temple. And Paul says there will be a man who we know to be the Antichrist, who will take his place in the temple, in the holy place, and proclaim himself to be God. Antiochus IV, who's called Antiochus Epiphanes, from the time in between the Testaments, did something very similar to this. He placed idols of himself and of Zeus in the holy place of the temple and sacrificed swine on the altar. This will be much, much worse because it will involve a worldwide coercion. 
It's not just going to be an attempt to finally Hellenize these stubborn Hebrews. It's going to be, you will worship me as God or I will take your head. The ultimate blasphemy. When the rebuilt temple of God is used for the worship of Satan's false Christ. And if you read closely, Satan himself will be worshipped. This will be out and out confessing devil worship. Satanism. You know, Satanists as they stand today, they want to make the point very clear. We kind of believe in the devil, but really Satanism is more about worship of yourself. I don't know if I really believe that because you don't sacrifice goats to yourself, you know. And that seems like the kind of thing you would say in order to make your dark religion more palatable to somebody else. But this is going to be, there's no more pretense. We worship the beast and the dragon who gives power to the beast. We'll talk more about what that's going to look like in the following chapters. But the point is, there's no more tricks. Satan's not messing around anymore. He's not trying to ease his way into the worship of the church and add corruption. He's not trying to set up false idols. He's not trying to do anything subtle anymore. He says, go into that temple, declare yourself to be God, and have all the world worship me. Because he knows, remember, his time is short and his anger is burning hot. And the most frightening thing of all of this, there's not going to be some mighty Spartacus rebellion. There's not going to be a Boston Tea Party this time. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone will be fooled. There's not going to be an underground resistance movement. The whole world will go after this. Bowing down to the devil and to the beast. There will be no compromise permitted in that day. Verse 7 there mentions the terrible persecution that will come as the, when the gloves come off that day. When the devil says, and I want every Christian and every Jew dead. I want them all dead and my name will be the only one that is exalted and worshipped anymore. So what do we have in the last days? Satan will raise up a global empire with a God emperor who will rule in his name. And if you think, well, that could never happen, may I remind you, Japan worshipped their emperor as God as recently as 1945. That Nepal worshipped their king as God until 1990. We think we're so far removed from that kind of paganism, it only takes one generation. And when Satan leverages all of his power and authority, pushing in all his chips at the same time, and when the hand of restraint has been removed from the Lord, and when the church and its salty, sanctifying effect has been removed, this will happen quickly and effectively. A global empire with a God emperor ruling in the name of Satan. Verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We've not heard the phrasing there in verse 9 since the letters of Revelation 2 and 3. If anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We read that seven different times. And here we have it again. It's John's way of saying... Pay attention to this one. Verse 10 is, is a rather notorious verse 
that is difficult to translate and even to identify what the original text would have been. So our translations in this room will probably be rather different from one another. The older translations tend to view this verse as being comforting, meaning the one who tries to take anybody captive is going to be taken captive themselves, and whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. Here's the problem. That does not seem to be the context of this passage, first of all, but if that's what it says, it's what it says. But as we look at the textual history of this verse, we have documentary evidence of language being added and massaged in this verse by scribes in order to make it more palatable. There are words that were added in later manuscripts in order to make it sound nicer. And the farther back you go and the older the manuscripts you have and the older commentaries we read from the church fathers on this, that this verse is a very tragic warning to the saints who live during this time. Now, is it true that the one who takes God's people captive will eventually themselves be taken captive? Yes. Is it true that the one who raises a sword against God's people will themselves face the sword of Almighty God's justice? Yes. But that is not what this verse is saying. What this verse is trying to say, and the ESV gets it right here. I don't mind calling out the ESV when I think they're mistaken, but I think they're right on this one. He says, let everybody hear this. When this happens, captivity and death are coming, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Because what did we just read? Authority was given to the beast to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He says, let, let the, if you have an ear, you need to hear this. There are some who are appointed to captivity and some who are appointed to death, which is why he makes a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Notice John is scrupulously not using the word church in these passages. I think that is significant. He showed himself in the early chapters now no problem using the word church. But whenever we're describing these last days, we don't see that. This is one reason among many, it's a minor one, but it's one reason among many why I hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. Matthew 16, 18, what did Jesus say about his church? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against them. Now, the counter to that would be, well, they're still going to win in the end. Yes, but I don't know how you can square Jesus' description of the church as his ongoing, endless victory with this saying that the authority was given to the beast to overcome them. So that's one reason among many why I believe that the Lord's church as it stands in this dispensation will be raptured prior to this time. But there will be many that come to faith during this time. They're called saints, holy ones is the word, and they're going to be viciously oppressed. That not, this is not to say either, by the way, that I think that a Christian doesn't deserve to suffer or doesn't deserve to suffer persecution. That's part of it. And you ought to endure persecution. And this passage would have been an encouraging word for the churches at the time that were suffering persecution, just as it is today. The only ones who escape the Antichrist deception, according to John here, are those who are, have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. That's another notorious grammar issue in the Greek. Is he saying that their names were written from the foundation of the world or that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world? It's the point is, it's always been God's plan, right? Those are the ones that will escape. Everybody else will be deceived. And as those in this room who will face antichrists of various kinds, we will face little a antichrist until we stand before the Lord, we too must have that same endurance and faith. Because while the, the ultimate 
evil has not arisen. Various other evils have arisen and will continue to arise until that day comes, which means if they need endurance and faith, so do we. And did you know something interesting? When John in, the, in his epistles warned against the Antichrist that were coming, the warnings that he gave to the church were about sound doctrine. You might think, well, shouldn't we be more concerned about persecution? He was more concerned about holding to the faith as it has been revealed. We're going to end here by looking at the three passages where John identifies the doctrines of the Antichrist. And we're going to remind ourselves what we are to be holding on to. Endurance and faith. Endurance and faith in what? In the faith as it has been handed down to you and to me. And you will see, not surprisingly, that the doctrines of the Antichrist are those doctrines that undermine who the Lord has revealed Jesus, his Christ, to be. 1 John 2, verse 22. He says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So what's the doctrine of the Antichrist? Our first one, who denies that Jesus was the Christ. And that seems impossibly basic, does it not? How can you call yourself Christian, even sympathetic to Christ, if you're not going to believe that? What does that word Christ mean? It's, a, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we transliterate as Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. He was the promised Messiah. He was the one that all of the Old Testament from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of Malachi had been prophesying would come to pay for sins. That Jesus was the one that died as a sacrificial offering and fulfillment of all the Old Testament's pictures of sacrifices and rituals. He was the sacrificial lamb. He was the priest. He was the water that can wash us. He was the one that can bring us into the holy place, the light of the world, the bread of life. The whole tabernacle was pointing to Jesus. He died for the forgiveness of sins for you and for me, which tells us, by the way, and I want to be careful when I say this, although it must be said. Let me say it first, then I'll give my, my caution. That tells us that Judaism, as it stands today, is anti-Christ. I don't even think a Jew would have a problem with that identification. Of course we're anti-Christ. We don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, it's interesting how Jews and Christians are cultural allies in a lot of ways. But you've got to remember what Paul said in Romans 11, that the Jews are enemies of the church as concerns Christ. Now, here's my caution. I have heard people make that point and then proceed to say a lot of really ignorant anti-Semitic stuff. I'm not going to do that. Neither should you. Because the Bible says that all Israel will be saved one day, that God's not done with them. That does not mean that we can approve of their doctrines right now. So those of you, and there are a lot of people that get into prophecy that fall into this category, that start to get really fascinated with Judaism and Hebrew culture and Israel, you got to make sure that you don't get sucked into that. Oh, the traditions, oh, all the, the rabbis and all of the, the symbolism and that. You know, all of that was done in order to prevent the Jews from accepting their Messiah. Oh, the Talmud, oh, the Mishnah. You know, that's the thing that Jesus was standing against. You have declared the doctrines of men to be the doctrines of God. We pray for their 
revival. We pray for their repentance, as we do for anybody that would fall under the category of antichrist. But as a doctrine and as an institution, anybody that denies that Jesus was the Christ, meaning anybody who denies that Jesus came to pay for sins through a sacrificial death on the cross, is antichrist. I must also point out to you that 1 John 2.22 is one of the strongest Trinitarian passages in the Bible. It denies the Father and the Son, identifying the Father and the Son as distinct persons of the Godhead. And as I'll tell you, I've said it a million times, whenever a weird, aberrant cult arises, they start messing with Jesus and they start messing with the Trinity. Watch out for that. Denies that Jesus was the Christ, the first one. 1 John 4, verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Jesus came from God. The second doctrine of the Antichrist is those that deny Jesus came from God. Here's where people try to get slippery with you. I, I believe that Jesus was the Messiah who died on the cross for sins, but I don't believe that Jesus was God. Don't you hear that? A lot of so-called Christians that want to say that. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I can't, you can't say Jesus was God, though. Well, then what exactly did John mean when he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How do you handle when Jesus said, I and the Father are one? How do you handle it when Peter and Paul identified Jesus as our Savior and our God? What was Thomas doing when he acknowledged Jesus, my Lord and my God, when he saw Him risen? If you don't believe Jesus is God, you're not a Christian. You might admire Christianity and appreciate the doctrines, but if you don't believe Jesus is God, I'm sorry, that's 101. That he came from God. He was not just a man with his own ideas, as the atheists would assert. Is it any surprise to anybody that atheism is anti-Christ? Now those folks, some of them will push back on you. This is the problem with you religious kooks. You can't just take the good things Jesus said and accept them and make a nice moral philosophy for yourself. You gotta go crazy with it and say that Jesus was God. Well, excuse me, but have you even read some of the things that Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Isn't it interesting that in the third Star Wars movie, they put the words of Jesus in the mouth of the villain at the end of that movie? If you're not with me, you're my enemy. Who said that? Jesus said that. Of course, the philosophy of that movie is impossibly confused because they want to do the other thing too and put Jesus' words in the mouths of the good guys. It's like, maybe, maybe you're not so smart. But getting back here, somebody's going to say, Jesus was a great man. I even believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he was the ultimate picture of God's love for us, which is just baffling to me that you're saying that God crucifying Jesus and pouring out his wrath upon his only son is a demonstration of love if you don't believe that Jesus was, was the son of God? That just makes God torturing somebody. Jesus had lots of great ideas, but we also should hear what Buddha had to say. Uh, we also should hear what, you know, the Enlightenment had to say and Karl Marx had to say and the Founding Fathers. I mean, they're all, you've got to take all the best of everything together. No! Jesus has the words of life. Nobody does. 
Life was in him. And he says, my father has granted me to have life in myself and to grant life to you too. You can't read the Bible and come up with this idea that Jesus was just some good guy. Unless you're going to do what atheists do and say, well, I don't believe Jesus said any of that. The church added that later. What's their evidence for it? None. They made it up because it's the doctrines of the Antichrist. So when you go off to college, you go to your, your freshman seminar and you go to your history of religion class, you're going to get some really smug individual stand up there and tell you that the church made all this stuff up. When in reality, they're standing on ideas that have been debunked by good Christian apologists for decades and centuries. Antichrist. 2 John 7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So the first one is that Jesus is the Christ. If you don't believe that, you're Antichrist. Second one is that Jesus came from God. He is God, very God. If you don't believe that, you're Antichrist. And the third one is that Jesus came in the flesh, that he was also a man. If you deny that, you are Antichrist. And you go, wait a minute, most people deny Jesus was God. Who denies that Jesus came in the flesh? A lot of strange, mystery, occult religions and the philosophers of the early church. This was the battle they had to fight. Jesus was the, was the essence of God. But to say that he took on a body is, is appalling to say that that could happen because the flesh is corrupt and for God to take on flesh would be unthinkable for a God to do that. There was a group of heretics called Docetists that believed that Jesus didn't even leave footprints in the sand because he wasn't really there. Dokeo in Greek, where the name comes from, means to appear. He only appeared to be a man. John says, that guy's an antichrist. Why? Why is it so important that Jesus was a man? Because if Jesus was not really a man, and I mean actually a man, then how could he pay for your sins on that cross? Amen. How are we to have solidarity with somebody that shares no solidarity with us? And at that point, too, the scriptures make no sense. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians tells us that he did not count equality with God thing to be grasped, but set it aside and took on the form of a bondservant, being humbled even to the point of death. And now he's been exalted to the place of God's right hand. Paul said there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. If you don't believe that Jesus really bore our sins in, in actual flesh on the cross, you're not a Christian. This is what Muslims believe. Jesus did not really die on the cross. There's various ways they go about this, but one of the ways they say is Simon of Cyrene started carrying the cross. Jesus was caught up to heaven and Simon of Cyrene was crucified in Jesus' place. Or they'll say Jesus hung on the cross, but he felt no pain and he didn't really die because Jesus couldn't possibly die in the, in the flesh. You know, when we were in the, in the prison, there's, I mean, Islam has made major inroads in the prison, particularly with the, the African-American community. But they come and they say, I was talking about the death of Jesus. Basic, right? Somebody raised their hand. But I mean, but Jesus didn't really die on the cross though, right? He was not being hostile. He was generally asking, genuinely asking. So, well, of course he died on the cross. I thought Jesus just appeared to die on the cross. Like that was all like a, a picture. No, of course he did. He gave out his last breath. They punctured his side with the spear and blood and water flowed. They prepared his body for burial. They put it in the tomb and rolled the stone over and he stayed there for three days. And then I got to talk about the resurrection, which means nothing if Jesus did not really die in the flesh. We believe not only in the bodily incarnation of Jesus and the bodily death, but the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven. And you know, 
The church has been wrestling with all manner of wacky heresies, messing with all this stuff for centuries. And the doctrines the church has arrived at, taking all of the biblical data together and arriving at these formulations, like the hypostatic union. Like, oh, that seems kind of crazy to me. What does that mean? Hypostasis is a Greek word meaning essence or nature. The hypostatic union means Jesus had the nature of God, took on the nature of humanity, and they were united into one person. Well, if you've ever heard somebody say Jesus is 100% man and 100% God, that's the doctrine of the hypostatic union. It is incredibly elegant and perfectly balanced because it avoids all of these false doctrines. The doctrine of the Trinity, the same way. That there is one God in three distinct persons. And the Son of God is the one that came to the earth. The Word makes no sense if you do not affirm all of these things. There are passages you've just got to set aside as like, I have no idea what that's on about. Essentially, to deny the truth of Jesus in the gospel, as articulated in the scripture, is to be anti-Christ. Let me give you an example. I mentioned this before, but I never get tired of sharing it because it's so horrifying to me. The Al-Aqsa Mosque that sits on the, on the Temple Mount right now, the golden dome that you've seen in the pictures of Jerusalem. It's a mosque where they believe Muhammad ascended to heaven, anti-Christ, right? Inside the dome written around in Arabic, it says, far be it from Allah that he should have a son. That is like the ultimate blasphemy, is it not? Right on the Temple Mount, where Jesus preached, where Jesus stood, where the lambs were sacrificed, just across the way where Jesus was crucified, and there stands a giant monument to the world that said, God has no son. Blasphemy. And one day, that is all going to culminate in the figure of the Antichrist who will take his place in the temple, declare himself to be God, and hunt down those that still hold to the truth of the gospel. And the only ones that will survive that deception are those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Someday, this deception will be the oppressive law of the land. There will be no more spiritual hiding place. There will be no more Oh, I kind of think this and I kind of think that. Like Elijah said, you're going to have to stop limping between two opinions. Some of you are in here and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for sins. Yet you have never made the confession of your faith in Him personally. You've never bowed the knee and say, I will serve Him the rest of my life. Do you think that's going to save you? Even the devil knows who Jesus is. If you're not going to serve Jesus, why do you keep on believing that he is who he says he is? If you believe that, it's time today to bow the knee and say, Christ is not just the Lord and Savior. He is my Lord and Savior. Well, if the names in the book of life have been written from the foundation of the world, how can I know if mine is there? You want to find out today? You know how you find out? If you're sitting under the sound of my voice and you hear me talking about Jesus who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, the Son of Man and the Son of God, that you hear this coming oppression, this religious tyranny that is going to take over the world and not only steal the, the worship of the people, but the hearts of the people, and that terrifies you, say, no, no, I want to be on Jesus' side. Then guess what? That's because your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life and He's calling you. Today's the day. But if you can walk away from this and say... I don't really see what all the fuss is about. You ought to worry. Be afraid for your soul. When's the last time you were afraid for your soul? Or do you spend so much time watching TV and drinking and partying with everybody and spending time doing things that are 
basic and, and silly and frivolous that you don't even have time to think about your soul anymore. Much easier to scroll for 45 more minutes than to sit down and think, am I going to go to heaven when I die or am I destined for hell? If this car crashes, if that thunderstrike hits my house and the house burns, am I going to continue to burn or am I going to be delivered into the presence of God? If you will confess that the man Jesus was Christ, the Son of God, who paid for sins by dying on the cross, confess his Father God in heaven and him as the Son, then the Holy Spirit will fill your heart and seal you for salvation. The cross alone can save you from the last Antichrist. 